don't have a Bible, you can follow the text in the bulletin. That's the the text I'm going to be referring to, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. Before I read this passage, I want you to think about this. In fact, I, I just prayed this just now. Something that we pray for as a church... I've, I preached on this around Christmas time, and uh, but it's something you'll hear in, in, in our prayers. The community groups pray for this for our city. Is this thing called revival? And I think we need to stop every once in a while and define our terms and say, what do we mean by that? That's a word that Christians have used for a long time, but in the 1800s, the meaning sort of changed. Uh, now, when you hear churches talk about a revival in the church... Typically what they mean is that our church is going to have a a series of special meetings, almost like an in-house conference. We'll have an outside speaker, we'll have special music, and maybe it's all week or it's over a weekend. And you'd say, you know, they might say our church is having a revival. But that's a newer usage of that word. That really happened in the mid to late 1800s. But before that, when Christians talked about revival, what they meant was something that you can't schedule. And you can't say this will start this Friday at 7. And what they meant was uh, an unpredictable, unschedulable work of the Spirit of God where in a concentrated place, in a concentrated time, the Spirit of God would work in people's lives. And you would see it in non-Christians' lives and in Christians' lives. Lots of non-Christians in a revival become Christians. And again, you can't make anyone do that. that. God has to do that. But also, lots of Christians would experience just profound renewal. Like maybe they had been around this stuff for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, but it was almost the feeling of, it's like I've become a Christian again. They can't do that. But, they, but they'd feel like it. That I, the, uh, I've just been next to this. I, I've fallen asleep next to it, and I'm just realizing how amazing God is and how bad the bad news is, and then how great the good news is. And all those are just kind of running, run through an amplifier. When you see a revival, again, you can't manufacture one, and you can't, um, you can't predict one. But when you have a revival, the precursor is always, when you look in church history, always there's conviction of sin. And not that we know all of what God's up to, but, but that makes sense that usually when God wants to make the good news jump off the page, first the bad news has to be really bad. The, the way that God got His people ready for the Messiah was through John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was very explicit about the bad news being really, really bad. And then the good news was precious. Um, this is... Yet again, and we've had a string of these. I'm just, we're going the way Paul wrote this letter. This is the last in a string of truly bad news passages. And let me say this, and then I'll read the passage. Reading this text will not put in you, or me, that conviction. We we can't make ourselves feel a certain way. Um, Preaching or hearing the sermon on this text will not put it in you. But I I will say this, when the Spirit of God is at work in a community, that the things that I'm about to read become very, very felt and real. And then the good news is awesome. 
so we should hear it. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, yet again, after a string of bad news passages from this letter, is another one. And in some ways it's hard to bear. We need to bear it. We need to hear you. And we pray that uh, this would hit us just the way it needs to hit us, but not so that we despair. Father, would you keep us from leaving in despair? But even having heard this, to leave with hope. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, when I was growing up, and I was about, about my son John's age, I was about 11 years old, we had a, a big backyard, and we had a neighbor whose backyard met with, with our backyard. And they had two dogs. They had the most amazing basset hound with just just the huge ears and the, the belly that just kind of scrapes the ground as he walks, and a giant sheepdog named Amos. And uh, I remember one night, I don't know if this was July 4th or what, but there were just fireworks around. And, you know, when you're 11 years old, there's fireworks around. You can't just have just like a, a July 4th. You, need, you want to find other uses for the fireworks. And so uh, a friend of mine and I thought that it would be, uh, and, and let me, I, you know, I didn't add this, Amos the sheepdog was what we would call high strung. We thought it would be fantastic fun in the dead of night, my friend and I, to um, set off bottle rockets next to the fence where Amos used to run back and forth just to see what his reaction would be. And so uh, just in the, in the cover of darkness, I set up a bottle rocket and uh, it went and stuck it in the ground so it really couldn't like fly off. It just and put it right there by the you know by the fence. And um, Amos went ballistic, and we thought that was fantastic, and um, that we should do it some more. Now you, you know, for grown-ups listening to this, you're probably thinking, um, 
Did it dawn on you at any point that if you keep doing this, some adult will leave the house and come out? We had not worked through it that much in, in, the, in the planning. So I did it once. I did it twice. I think I was on a, a, a third. I'm looking at my mom as I'm, as I'm telling you. You knew about this, didn't you? Okay, well, I'll keep going. We probably should have verbally processed this before the sermon. But uh, I think it was the third or fourth bottle rocket. Uh, dead of night, I'm, I'm setting it up, and all of a sudden I hear a voice behind me say, I wouldn't do that if I were you, and it was the owner. And I'm telling you, that was 30-something years ago, and when I remember that, I still just feel icky. You know, it was, it was the hand in the cookie jar times 30, just... I'm the one kneeling down with the bottle rocket and a lighter. Like, there's no way to talk yourself out of this. I'm the person doing this. And the thing is, I'm pro-dog, you know? I'm a dog guy. And what do we think of people that torment dogs? They're bad. And I was the dog tormentor. I was the bad person, and I'm caught. I just remember the, the, just the feeling of turning around and facing him. And there's just no way to talk your, your way out of it. Uh, we've all had moments like that. Some are, are childhood memories. Some are, are much more serious. This passage is a passage about the whole human race really just being caught. And, and called out by the law of God. You know, the law of God are not just random rules, but they come out of Him. So they reflect what He's like. And it's already written on our hearts. We looked at that in a passage several weeks ago. The contents, the gist of it, is already on every human heart. But then especially when you've got it written and spelled out for you, there's no reason for us not to do this. But if, you, if you'll just take a moment and look at the law of God, it leaves you standing there if we'll hear it. And we just cannot explain it away. Like you can't explain why you keep lying. You can't explain why you keep hating. And so we're just there. Now, I want to I say this again, and especially if you're visiting. I, you've heard me say a string of bad news passages. I, I like to preach through books. And so we're going through the book of Romans, and there's this big section at the beginning of this letter, I mean, we're just in chapter 3, this bad news that's saying human beings are not good. And human beings deserve, I mean, richly deserve, punishment from God. And if that's not clear in our minds, what Jesus did, what He came to accomplish, is not going to be precious to us. So you've got to hear the bad so that the good will be wonderful. So in a way, he's setting us up, but it, it's, it is yucky to hear it. Now, Lord willing, if you can come next week, that's when the good news is going to just start running through. I mean, the, the floodgates are going to flow with the good news. That literally starts in verse 21. I, would, I just wish, if you're visiting, that you'll come back. But here's where we are this morning. And I want to look at three things about the bad news. First off... The bad news is global. It's, it's, it's exceptionless. The bad news is global. The bad news is lived out. And third, the bad news is humbling. The bad news is global. The bad news is lived out. The bad news 
is humbling. First off, the bad news is global. Uh, verse 9, Paul's already developed this point. He, kind of, he starts off way back in chapter 1 and says, what's the human condition? What are, what are human beings like irrespective of religion or ethnic background or just people? And it's that we're idol worshipers. It may not be a statue in a shrine, but we, we, we take something from creation and we worship it rather than the Creator. And all these horrible things happen in our lives that flow out of that. And those things deserve judgment. And then Paul sort of cues in on the Jews and says, no, wait a second. The Jews are supposed to be the people that know this stuff better than anybody. They've got the Scriptures. They don't worship a false god. They worship the one true God. But they're doing these things too. And so he aims it at Gentiles. He aims it at Jews. He just aims it at all human beings. Well, you get to verse 9 and he says, All right, so where are we? Having said what we've said, where are we? Verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? And he's, calling, he's identifying himself as a Jew. He's not being anti-Semitic. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And then in case there's any, any doubt, look, look, look at the language of verse, verses 10 and 11. He's quoting from the Old Testament. None is righteous. No. Not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. It, it, just, just none. Not one. No one. Not even one. There are no exceptions. Now, I think, if you are thinking right now, the question that may really run to the front of your mind is, oh, but okay, I don't see how he can say that because aren't there people who seek God? Well, that depends on what we mean by that. I mean, if, if we're saying, aren't there people all over the world that seek for the divine? Billions do. Aren't there people all over the world that kind of seek for Godness? Billions of people do. Aren't there people all over the world that seek for enlightenment and spiritual enrichment? There's a planet full of them. <clears throat> but when an apostle, especially when an apostle who's quoting the Old Testament, when he uses the word God, does he just mean kind of generic Godness? Does he mean sort of generic spiritual enlightenment? From an apostle's point of view, enlightenment is Scripture. That is God saying, do you want to understand reality? Do you want to know truth? All right, here it is. People like us, left to ourselves, with our own devices, do we want enlightenment? Well, yeah, on our terms. Yeah. Do we want an experience with the supernatural and with the divine? Yeah, on our terms. But... Left to our own devices, naturally, is there any human being who wants the God of the Bible, the one true God, the Creator God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to whom we owe everything and have failed and cannot dig our way out? Is that the God that we want? And Paul is saying there's not one human on earth who seeks for that God. 
That's bad news. Um, and it's global. And I, let me say this before I go on. In some ways, it's a real relief for me to get to say what I'm about to say because it has everything to do with your experience in this room and how you feel. I don't know how it feels when you walk in here. Uh, Because no two people are the same. And I I hear some folks say, when I come into worship, I feel feel, uh, like I can be myself. I feel like I don't have to pretend. And, And when I hear that, that is music to my ears. But I've also heard people say, when I walk in, it looks like a a group of very sharp people. And I've even heard some folks say, sometimes I wonder if I can bring this friend who's very very fragile right now, or who doesn't seem very put together. I wonder if I can bring that friend with me, because is he or she going to walk in this room and feel like, wow, here's all these sharp together people, and, and I don't fit in. And wow, this passage... Uh, strangely, should be the antidote to that. If you look around the room, and this looks like a together group of people, do not be fooled by appearances. The reason that we are making a confession of sin every week is because we are not what we seem, and we are not how we look. And that's not to say... I mean. The rest of the book is going to be talking about this. It's not to say that God can't do real meaningful things in our lives that do bring like more stability and order. Yeah, sure. But don't ever think that if you come in this room that you're walking into a group of people who have got it together more than I do. Everyone here is broken, bent, sinful, and not just passively, but actively, and has been all week. And it's, that's every human being that we'll ever encounter. That's true of. Okay? So the, the bad news is global. Now, then, in some ways, it gets worse. Because the bad news is lived out. It's not just, wow, well, there's this problem with the hard drive. There's a problem with the formatting, but let's just manage it the best we can. No. It's, it's what we're doing out of this bent, sinful, broken condition. Now, look, look back in verse 10. Do you notice how this block of verses, 10 through 18, have quotation marks around them? The reason for that is that Paul is quoting from what we would call the Old Testament, what he would just call the Bible. And he quotes some from Isaiah, and he quotes some from Proverbs, but most of the quotes, if you look it up in, in a Bible margin, are from Psalms. Now, why is that interesting? Well, one reason that's interesting is because for Jews, you'd hear the Scriptures read in the synagogue. You'd hear the books of Moses, the prophets. You know, you'd hear stuff like Isaiah, Proverbs. But Scriptures that just would kind of be in your bones because you would have heard them and sung them. It'd be your hymn book. Growing up would be the Psalms. And Paul quotes these passages and says, Wow, this is pretty bad. People who don't want God, don't seek after God, they don't fear God, they hurt other people, that's pretty bad. Paul is saying, you know what, you may have grown up Jews because there were ethnic Jews in the Roman congregation and Gentiles. He's saying, you may have thought, wow, when you sing those psalms, those Gentiles are bad, aren't they? 
So when you're singing that, you feel removed from it. And Paul is saying, stop removing yourself from it. I mean, what does verse 9 mean? What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, you could read that, both Jews and Gentiles, and that's every human, are under sin. So be done with the us versus them. We're all in this together. And virtually any commentary that you look at on the book of Romans, when you get to chapter 3 in that, that group of verses, 10 to 18, all those quotes from the Old Testament, almost any commentator will point this out, that Paul, it's almost like he's just going through the body and the abilities of a human being saying, that's been affected, that's been affected, our minds have been affected, no one understands, our willpower has been affected, all have turned aside. Uh, our relationship with other people has been affected. We attack them. We shed blood. We hurt them. Our relationship with God has been affected. There's no fear of Him. But just for time's sake, let, let's just consider one. Look, look at verse 13. 13 and 14. And it's talking about our talk, our speech. Verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. I mean, the imagery is just awful. What's an open grave like? Death and decay. And ugly things. What does, the, uh, what does a poisonous snake's poison do? It hurts and kills. What does cursing do? It hurts. And sometimes it actually kills. You can kill somebody with your words. And, you know, at this point, we could go off on all the ways that we've done that. But here's what I want you to think about. Every human being in this room, every human being in Greenville, every person, man, woman, or child, that you and I will ever interact with has felt this. Every person has hurt other people with his or her words. And when, when we do that, there's, you know, there's different options as to, as to how we'll manage that. Will we just kind of explain it away inside of ourselves and kind of live in denial that I actually hurt people as much as I do? Or will we just be covered with regret for the ways that I've hurt people and continue to with my words? Every human being has that churning, so, some, some version of that. But every human being has also been on the receiving end of it. I mean, even if you've had an incredibly charmed life, people have said cruel things. People have sort of figured out, you know what, I've been watching you and I know your weak link and I think I know just the right joke. I think I know just the right jab. And your soft spot in your armor to hurt you. And they did it. And all of us are managing that in different ways. My own regrets, my own hurt, my own sense that I hurt people and the ways that I've been hurt by others' words. For some people, it may be that they take meth. And that's how they deal with the hurt. And for others, many of us, we, we, you know, we make a different cocktail and it's part accomplishment and control and church-going 
and cheerfulness and children's activities and a little more control. And we drink it and just, you know, man, I'm glad I don't take meth. Uh, We are in this together. That we're not just sinners, but we sin. We sin with our minds and our feelings and our doing and our not doing. The reason that our church doesn't love each other like we could or should is because of this. The reason that we have to rally ourselves to worship God, whether in public or private, is because of this. And I want you to think about something. You know, on the one hand, you just may be going, ugh, remind me not to go to that church anymore. This is discouraging. You know, there's a million different applications here. One I would mention is, if we don't come to grips with this, Strange as it is to say, do you understand, racism will never get better. And the reason I say that is that something that's up underneath any kind of racism, any kind of exclusion, wherever it is in the world, whatever races are involved in the world, what's underneath it is that I make this race, this kind of person out to be other and feel superior and feel like I must distance myself from you or maybe get rid of you. All varieties of racism have that up underneath it because that's the human condition, is that your problems are worse than my problems. This text speaks to the heart of who are we to do that? Every human being, whatever the color, whatever the background, whatever the likes and dislikes, whatever the culture, every human being is in this dilemma. We are in this together. Not just the sinful condition, but the doing of it. So, as if this needs to even be said, the bad news is humbling. Um, How does Paul express that? And let let me do this in reverse order. Look in verse 20. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin... Okay, one way that we're humbled is that our eyes are finally opened. They're opened to what we are really like. The law of God is in some ways like the mirror in a department store changing room or a retail changing room. Those are the worst mirrors because they're head to toe and the lighting's not like our bathroom. I like me in my bathroom lighting. I don't like me in changing room mirrors because you really kind of see what you look like. And Paul's going to say, you know, table this, we're going to get to it. But in in chapter 7, Paul says, you know what? I didn't even know what coveting was. And then I read, you shall not covet, and I was all about it. Now I knew what that was. It had been in me the whole time, but I knew how to covet once I read, you shall not covet. It's like it aroused it inside of me. It didn't put it in me, but the law showed me what I'm like. So part of the humbling is that our eyes are open, but the other part is that our mouths are closed. Verse 19. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Uh, If you've watched a documentary about World War II and um, the concentration camps that um, the Nazis had set up, you may have seen footage of what I'm about to describe. It's, it's amazing. There were areas when the Allied forces liberated these concentration camps, they went into surrounding towns and they got the locals to walk through the concentration camps and sometimes even to clean them and dig the mass graves. And there's debate about how, how many locals in any of these areas knew what was going on, who didn't, but, but many had denied that these reports that were getting out could be true. And the Allied forces walked them through, there's footage of this, through the concentration camps to say, all right, first off, open your eyes. And number two, do not try to explain this away. And literally, in the footage, you'll see men and women with, you know, tears handkerchiefs over their mouth because of the stench, but also the grief that their their people did this. And there is no explaining that it's the law of God, in a sense, the perfect standards of God, that walks us through our own heart and says, open your eyes and close your mouth and stop this PR campaign where you spin things to make it better than it is. This is how you look. And that's humbling. It's supposed to. And a couple of things to close this. One, uh, as best I can recall, I became a Christian in 10th grade. I grew up in the church, but just whatever Jesus meant by he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I got my ears in 10th grade. And early on, I mean, in high school, somebody gave me a cassette of a Welsh preacher named Jeffrey Thomas. He's a pastor of a Baptist church in Aberystwyth, Wales. And 30-something years later, he is still the pastor of that church in Aberystwyth, Wales. Uh, long pastorate. And I don't, I don't know who gave me this tape. But this has really stayed with me. He had a, he, it's not a Scottish accent, it's a Welsh accent, it's very sing-song. And in this Welsh accent, at one point toward the end of a sermon, he said, Will you, will you shun owning that you are a sinner? And then he said, It is a wonderful thing to be a sinner. I'd never heard anyone say that. And then he went on to say, all the promises of God are to sinners. Did you know that? Well, I mean, it's a strange thing for a preacher to stand up in a bad news passage and say, it is a wonderful thing to be a sinner, but it is. Not because sin is wonderful. Sin is horrible and it's nuking us in our lives. But to be a sinner is to be the person to whom God makes these, what Peter called, great and precious promises. 
I mean, think about the passage that we read in the assurance of the gospel. That you've got a guy that goes into the temple and he, and he doesn't just say, I'm awesome. He thanks God. Thank you, God, that I'm awesome. And you've got the other guy who won't even look up at heaven, but he stands off at a distance. And uh, in the King James, it says he smote his breast. And in the Greek, it says, have mercy on me, the sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that that man, rather than the other, went home justified with God. And that term, justified with God, is huge in Romans. Wait till next week. And I know, believe me, I've been marinating in this all week. These things are hard to hear, but you know what? If this humbles us, if it humbles you individually and if it humbles us as a church, here's what Jesus says. If you try to exalt yourself, if we go home in this sort of desperate way, look in the mirror and say, I think I am really a pretty good person. He says, you will be humbled. But he doesn't stop there. He says, but he who humbles himself, like take the tour of the heart and look at what's there and open the eyes and close the mouth. He says, he who humbles himself will be exalted because God will raise him up. And that's how this bad news passage becomes a good news one. At least gets us ready. Please come next week. Because what we're going to hear is that there's a way for you to be justified in the sight of the living God, not through what we do. By works of the law, no one will be justified. But through what Christ did and just believing in Him. But the last thing I want to say is this. Um, I've mentioned this before. In, in my job before I moved to Greenville, I was in a building with other campus ministers, and there was a, uh, an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting there every Wednesday at lunchtime in our building. And I had a great office window on a busy Nashville street. And the reason I knew they met was because regularly clockwork I'd see the same group of people come and I'd see them with, bring their brown bag lunches and they'd walk past my office and I'd hear them gathering in the back. And it just struck me, because I watched this not just for months but for years, continuity, regular attendance, warmth, affection. There was a huggy group. In fact, like things that we want in the church, they have. I don't know what the spiritual substance was, but as far as some behaviors, they had them. And what, I, what I've heard over and over and over from people who've been through in recovery programs, who've come out of substance abuse and, and go through recovery, is that I've never had a group that I was that honest with. I've never had a group where because everybody has mutually devastated their life, they could sit and nobody's got the moral high ground and you don't have to walk on eggshells and you can just be honest. It was liberating. With no disrespect for that, because I've seen God use that in people's lives, this is supposed to be the community where we can do that. Because if this is true, why would we not? 
And as we've said, there is something really special about, for instance, a community group when instead of just saying, yeah, we've had a good week, blah, 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 pray for my grandmother, and I'm all about praying for grandmothers. Yes, may they all be prayed for. But there's just something precious about when somebody says, I am an angry person. And it's getting on my friends. And it's getting on my family. And it is affecting my work. And I need your prayers. There's something about when a husband and wife say, we have been fighting for two weeks. And we need your prayers. There's something about when somebody says, I am staring at my Bible and I don't want to pick it up and I've never felt more dead toward God and I need you to pray for me. And God is faithful. But you know what? If these things are true, can we be more Christian than Southern? Can we be more biblical than Southern? This is supposed to be, and it can be, a community where we can say, God have mercy on me, the sinner. And we can say it individually and together. And then can hear Jesus saying to us, He who humbles himself will be exalted. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, please take the bad news and open our eyes and close our mouths, but let us not only with open eyes see sin or see the problems with our hearts, but open our eyes to see Jesus, the one punished for our sin, the one who did all things well was the substitute for those who have disobeyed. Uh, We pray that we would leave with joy. We pray that we could sing and come to your table with joy. Not because of our record, but because your precious Son is at your right hand. And we pray in His name. Amen.